those of you who are history people like me, you remember certain episodes and uh, particular parts of our history in terms of battles and the war. You may remember that at the beginning of the war between the states, the Civil War, the first major battle that took place was the Battle of Bull Run. That was a battle that rocked the Union back on its heels. It was a wake-up call. They were routed by a Confederate army that was better positioned and more ready for that battle. Following that war, there were multiple battles that came along where the Union Army lost again. And it wasn't until General Grant came in to serve President Lincoln that the war got on track for the Union soldiers. And eventually, of course, a turning point in the war that we all know is Gettysburg. All those battles in the early days of the Civil War might have been foreboding. It might have appeared that in those early days, the Union would be lost. But eventually the war was won by the Union. Here's another image, a little bit more lighthearted. The same image could be used when it comes to sports, coaches and teams. You can have any number of episodes where you have a battle that you've won in the middle of a war. Now, some of you may know exactly what that is. That is what is uh, called the Watt shot. That's Christian Watford, number two shooting the final shot of the game against University of Kentucky, 0.7 seconds on that clock that was so infamous. You can see the balls released from his hands. Now, what followed that was the storming of the court. What also happened, I happened to be at that game. It was a great game. I've never been at a game like that before in my life. It was just epic because we beat this crazy rival UK. I remember just before Watford got the ball, I turned to my wife and said, oh, so close, because we had played a great game and it looked like we could win. And then, of course, that happened. There were older men around me who had been going to those games for 40 years, and they were weeping. They were weeping after that shot. We're back, we're back, they shouted. Uh, unfortunately, you know the rest of the story. <laughs> we're not back. It was a flash in the pan. It was great. It was a battle within a war. And you know what happened that very year? The people we beat on that Florida Assembly Hall went on to, beat the, to win the national championship in 2012. It was just a skirmish in the middle of this long battle called College Series that leads to the Final Four. Today, we saw a skirmish in our reading. We saw a battle in the middle of a war. From the very beginning of the church, even before Pentecost, there were skirmishes that looked like they would set the church back. Remember the beheading of John the Baptist? That was traumatic. Remember the crucifixion of Jesus? When the disciples are bewildered and wondering, what is this kingdom of God, this Messiah after that? Then, of course, we get this high point called Pentecost. And then another battle, one that goes badly. Stephen, he's killed. Use the word assassinate. Stone to death for basically proclaiming the gospel.
You see, Stephen's story is told over and over again. And I don't mean the people in that particular story. It's told over and over again by people who are following Christ for centuries beyond that and even to this very present day. Stories like Stephen exist today in other countries. But they're skirmishes, my friend. They're battles within the larger war. This particular battle, Stephen had fallen out of favor with some members of a particular synagogue, and they accused him. It's very ironic, very similar. They accused him to the way that Jesus was accused for destroying or tearing down the temple or desecrating it, not obeying or keeping or endorsing the law and the prophets. Those were the same charges against Stephen, trumped up charges. And what does Stephen do? He creates his own sermon defense before the Sanhedrin, and he says it's not true. Here's what's true, he said, and he recounts the history of Israel, and he puts Moses right at the beginning of it, and he says, Moses predicted that someday a prophet would be raised up from among you that would be like him, only greater. And that prophet has been raised up, it's Jesus. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, he quotes Isaiah chapter 66, and in Isaiah chapter 66 and other parts of Isaiah, you see this opening this opening of the curtain when it comes to the revelation of God for the world. It's there that he quotes Isaiah when he says, look, this house, this temple, that's not my house. Oh, it's grand. I commanded it to be built and Solomon built it. And then, of course, later Herod built it up. But he said, this house is is not my house. My house is the universe, God said. And earth is my footstool. Stephen is predicting the future. He's telling them the window of grace is about ready to open on the world. Jerusalem is no longer the center. You are not the source of power as its leaders. This thing called the good news concerning Jesus Christ is for everyone. And God will be worshiped all over the world. And for that, he was stoned. You may remember in the reading that when Stephen was stoned and buried, a great persecution broke out against the church. And all but the apostles had to flee from Jerusalem. I read an account of a young man who was planning to be a captain of a large ship this week. And the account described his, his mentorship by an older captain. And he recalled the most important thing he ever learned from that mentor was on one particular day, a tremendous storm came up on the open sea. Gale force winds looked like they could capsize the boat. And he said, the old captain said to me, son, turn into the storm, never away from it. What the apostles did, persecution broke out, they turned right into the storm. They kept proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ right in the middle of the storm. And it transformed their world 
and the world that was to come. Following Peter's, uh, following, I'm sorry, Stephen's stoning and burial, one of the prominent disciples, a group called the Seven among them, became famous for evangelizing in every territory that he could go to. His name was Philip. So following that stoning of Stephen, he goes to Samaria. You have to think that the words of Stephen, which are not all recorded for us, and the words of Isaiah 66 and other prophecies are ringing in his ear, and he says, this good news is for everyone. I remember Jesus and the woman at the well. I'm going to Samaria. And he takes off for Samaria, and he proclaims the gospel there accompanied by signs and wonders, and people are amazed. Large crowds come out to listen to the gospel being proclaimed, and many people come to faith in Christ. But, but that group of people, they were the most despised people in first century Palestine because they were interracial people. They had been left behind during the exile, and they'd married into the families of their captors, The Jews hated them. There was deep animosity. You remember that from the story of the woman at the well. As a matter of fact, these people, they held up Moses and the law, but they disdained the prophets. I won't go into why, but also they worshiped Mount Gerizim and not in Jerusalem. And after Stephen's execution, Philip goes to Samaria And he, in effect, says the same thing that Stephen has said. The entire world, the entire world is just the footstool of God. The heavens declare him, but he's greater than that. The temple is not in Jerusalem or Jerusalem. The temple is wherever the people of God are worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ. And he introduces them to Jesus. After he's done there, he can't keep himself on the couch, so to speak. He continues on. This time he continues on because he gets a word from the Spirit, and the Spirit says, I want you to go south of Jerusalem on this road that leads to Gaza, into the desert. I just want you to get on the road and go. There's no indication in the Scripture that the Spirit told him that there's somebody down there, there's a group of people, this is your plan, this is your strategy. He basically just says, get on the blessed road and start south. So Philip gets on the blessed road and starts south. And he runs into a high official in the queen of Ethiopia's court, the eunuch of Ethiopia. And he notices that this high-ranking official is in a chariot reading the book of Isaiah. You might wonder, how does he know he's reading Isaiah? Well, maybe because he could see the scroll, but I think there was another reason. Back then when people read, they read out loud. We might sit quietly and read our Bible or a book. They read it out loud. There wasn't that much material to read. And the scroll was precious, and so he was probably reading the scroll out loud. He was reading the passage about the suffering servant. And Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? Do you get it? And in effect, the eunuch says, well, of course not. How can I get it? I need somebody to tell me. You tell me, Philip. 
Is the prophet talking about himself here or is he talking about somebody else? Can you imagine that opening? For someone who has just seen the risen Christ and experienced Pentecost and watched his friend Stephen die a martyr's death, that open door looked like an expanse that was bigger than the back of this church and he walked right through it. Of course I could tell you who it's about. It's about Jesus. By the way, just an aside. You know, evangelism is not a program. It's not a particular method, although there's good ones. Evangelism is about being aware of the question. If you have your ears and your heart tuned, there's going to be a question. And you can walk right into it, as Philip does. Before it's all over, the eunuch is overwhelmed by the grace of God, and, and he wants to be baptized. And Philip says, well, let's do it. So the eunuch calls for his horsemen to stop the chariot. And they go right down into the water, and they're baptized, and he went away rejoicing. See what just happened in, in one chapter? The Samaritans hear the gospel to the north. And now people to the south hear the gospel all the way into Africa. So you've got African believers because of the Ethiopian eunuch. You've got Samaritan believers to the north that are the despised ones. The gospel is beginning to spread around the world. And the rest of the book of Acts is a recounting of how it spread. It's amazing. But then there's one other thing I want to emphasize. It was alluded to in this passage. While Stephen was being stoned to death, a young man was present holding the coats of those who were executing Stephen, and we know him as Paul. Back then his name was Saul. The text also says that he stood by approving He wasn't just a person who happened to be there and was watching the scene. He knew what was happening, and he approved of it. That person, Paul, the chief persecutor of the church, following Stephen's execution, becomes the chief proclaimer of the church. He spreads the gospel more than anyone else throughout the entire Roman Empire. Whether it's Philippi or Thessalonica or Corinth, the list goes on. And finally in Rome itself, he shares the good news as Philip has. You remember the story of Paul. He was a persecutor of the church and on his way to do that dastardly deed one more time with orders from the Sanhedrin. He was struck from his horse by a light, and it was Jesus who spoke to him, and he was blinded by that light. Now, Paul was a devoted follower of God. He just didn't believe in Jesus. And so when that happened, Paul basically said, Lord, who are you? Where's the voice? And the voice said, it's Jesus the one you're persecuting. Paul, it's not easy for you to kick against the goads, is it? The goad is something that was used on oxen to keep them moving along. And if they had opportunity, they'd kick that goad. 
I got to wonder, I don't know. I got to wonder if the memory of Stephen was one of those goads that was pricking at him. The face of Stephen, which the scripture said looked like an angel while he's being killed. The words of Stephen, which are the same words as Jesus, Lord, forgive them. Please don't hold this against them. I wonder if that was going through Paul's mind. I wonder how many times he thought of it. Eventually, God got to him. And he surrendered his life to Jesus and became the chief apostle of the church. Here's the big story. The big story is there's lots of battles, and it looks like we lose. There's lots of saints, and they're martyred, and that's bad news. But the good news, the church cannot be defeated. It is impossible. Or in the words of Jesus, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. The gates of hell can prevail about, against about anything, but not against the church. The church is the eternal living body of Christ. Christ left the disciples and he said, you know, even though I'm going away, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, there's a sense in which I'm not going away because I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. And you know how he's with us always? To the end of the age. I'll tell you how he's with us always. Look around you. Right here is the body of Christ. The living, breathing body of Christ, his church. Just as Christ's body could not stay in the grave because death couldn't hold it, no skirmish, no battle will bring down the church because death cannot hold it. That's the big story. Here's the personal story within the big story. When we enter into the life of the church, the body of Christ. We're a part of an eternal reality. Our life takes on eternal meaning. No philosophy, no thinking process, no self-help that we could muster gives us the eternal meaning that we find when we link ourselves with the body of Christ. Nothing else does. What is the church? It's the epicenter of divine power. You see that throughout the book of Acts. It's not individuals. It's the church that's the epicenter of God's divine power. What is the church? In this temporary world, it is the only organization that is eternal and will last forever. Nations come and nations go. Corporations come and corporations go. Clubs come and clubs go. Universities come and universities go. But the church is eternal. 
it will never pass away. What is the church? It's a community where the wisdom of God resides. I do my best to understand the wisdom of God. I try to place it in my heart, and I try to proclaim it. But I, in all my feeble and noble efforts, don't come close to the wisdom of God that resides in the whole body of Christ. That's where the wisdom of God resides. What is the church? It's a place of encouragement and comfort for those who are struggling. One of the saddest things I've heard over these many years of pastoring is people who get to the place that they're struggling, falling into sin, falling into doubt, kind of lost their way, and then they disappear. And sometimes, when I'm able to talk to them, they'll say something like this. Well, I, I had to go away to get myself together. I had to go away so that I could be good enough to come back. There's almost nothing that hurts me more than that. You don't go away because you're not good enough. As the song that we're about to sing says, you come to the table with all your sins and all your problems. You come to the table, the body of Christ, where you're healed and you're restored. As Dan so wonderfully put it last week in his sermon, church is not perfect. Don't expect it to be. Or as several people have said, if you find the perfect church, leave right away because you'll ruin it, right? No, it's not perfect. We're not perfect. We never will be. We never have been. But even in the midst of the imperfections, you have to encourage yourself with this reality. The church is the eternal body of Christ. One last thing. There's a parallel reality to the corporate church that matches up with this theme. It's, it's the individuals who find life in the church. So my encouragement to you is when the battle rages... Maybe it's raging for you right now. It's just a battle. You're in a bigger war. And if you stay with Christ, the war is going to be won. Be encouraged. In the midst of it, God is at work. Second, when you're struggling, don't give up hope. Hope. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Believe it when you're struggling. And when the battle, whatever the battle is, seems to be lost, don't focus on the current circumstances. 
Instead, lift your eyes. Lift your eyes to the eternal reality of the body of Christ. As Paul put it on one occasion, and I was able to remind someone of in a hospital just this past week, these present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the glory that we will receive. Because we're attached to the eternal body of Christ. When you are, you're part of something that's bigger than yourself. And every one of us needs that. So commit yourself to the body of Christ and find life eternal. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for your church. We thank you that your church is um, flawed. Because if it wasn't, we wouldn't feel comfortable because we are. Thank you that your church is sinful. Thank you that your church argues with one another. Thank you that your church goes through battles and loses. Thank you that your church, in spite of everything, will endure. And thank you that your church is the eternal body of Christ in the world. Lord, may we recommit ourselves to the church. May we find comfort when we struggle, encouragement when we're in the midst of the battle, and healing in the body of Christ. And we'll thank you. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.